Let's review where we have been the last few weeks with Jacob and his family. Remember that from the very beginning, Jacob, he was always second choice. Even though he was a twin, his brother Esau was technically born first, and Esau was really bigger and stronger. Jacob was kind of the runt. So on the playground, you know, Esau, he was always picked first, and Jacob was picked last. Scripture says that their father, Isaac, actually loved Esau the best because he was a really good hunter. In other words, Esau was kind of a, a man's man, a guy's guy, which meant that Esau was always in the limelight. He was the one everybody liked. Jacob, on the other hand, he was more of a mama's boy. He spent his time in the kitchen and, and learning how to cook and learning how to scheme. See, Jacob's name, it means surplanter or tricksy, you might say, and, and he really lived up to that one, trying hard to live up to mama's expectations, trying to figure out a way not to be second choice. And so tricksy, Jacob, manipulates his brother Esau into handing over his birthrights, and, and then he gets in cahoots with his mom to trick dear old blind dad and, and steal the family blessing away from Esau. Of course, Esau is outraged about this. He begins spewing these murderous threats at his brother, his twin brother, Jacob. And so Jacob has to run for his life. And this, my friends, is the story of the central biblical family. And then today we hear the story of the grown-up Jacob who's run off marrying two sisters at the same time who happen to also be his cousins. It, it must have made mom and dad so very proud, all these family dynamics. And so I figured, you know, this this story really sets the stage for a good old-fashioned sermon on biblical family values. So that's what we're going to have today as we dig into this story. Jacob made this journey to where his uncle Laban was supposed to live, and, and when he gets to Laban's hometown, he sees her for the first time. Rachel, she walks up to this well with her, her sheep, and Jacob wants to know who this girl is. He is smitten with her right then and there. Something just captured his fancy. I don't know if it was the dust and sweat caked on her forehead in some kind of sexy way, or if it was the smell of sheep that was following her around, but apparently the pheromones were pretty thick there because when she walked into the scene, Jacob like kicks it up into macho mode and he plays the hero. You see, they were there at this well where they needed to get water, only the well was covered by this huge heavy stone and so Jacob, he sort of struts up with his chest all puffed out like a frat boy on parade. Oh, let me take care of that for you, little lady. And he rolls the stone back and he waters the sheep for her. And then he even sneaks in a quick, innocent kiss, the scripture tells us. Once Rachel finds out who he is, she runs home to tell her father, Laban, who welcomes Jacob to come and stay with him. And he did. He stayed with them night after night, after week, after week. A month goes by, and you know how it is. House guests can get a little old after a while, and, 
And Laban can tell Jacob's not really in a hurry to get back home. He, apparently he's got a price on his head. So Laban decides to hire him on into the family business. Well, what should your, labor, your wages be? Laban asks him. Well, I kind of want to marry your daughter, Rachel. Will you give her to me for seven years of, of servitude? Sounds good, Laban says. They shake on it. Deal is done. So, biblical family values, lesson number one. Anybody that wants to marry one of my kids will have to be my indentured servant for seven years. That's what Jacob does. He worked those seven years while flirting with Rachel, and, and you know how they were, always holding hands, sitting a little too close for everybody else's comfort, giving each other those googly eyes, longing to be married. And all that time out in the fields with the sheep, it, it gave Jacob plenty of time to write some bad poetry. Roses are red, violets are blue. It's worth the wait to marry you. Your eyes are like the sun. Your hair, well, it's a little woolly like the sheep. Your beauty lights my days. Your presence haunts my sleep. <laughs> they laughed and giggled and snuck a kiss when no one was looking. They got butterflies in their stomach just thinking about their wedding day. In fact, the scripture even says that those seven years, quote, seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her, unquote. Well, isn't that sweet? And finally the day came, that long-awaited time. And so Laban, Rachel's father, Laban plans this big celebration for the wedding day, and they invite all of their friends and all the neighbors, and they have a feast, but you know the story, right? That night, Jacob went into the wedding chamber to consummate the marriage, and when he woke up the next morning, he looked over at the woman sleeping next to him. And to his great surprise, the woman that he had spent the night with was Leah, not Rachel. Now, the question that everybody always asks in this story is, how in the world did that happen? How did he not know it was Leah and not Rachel in his bed? I mean, those girls are not the twins of the story. Remember, that was Jacob and Esau. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? So how did he not know? Well, the truth is, I have no idea. Maybe he drank too much. I don't know, but somehow Laban pulled the thing off. So, biblical family values, lesson number two. If I still don't like one of my kids' fiancés after seven years, the deal is off. Too bad for you. You bet, Jacob, he was furious. He didn't want Leah. He wanted Rachel. This was not the deal that he had made. This was not the woman that he had fallen in love with. And so he had some words for Laban. Laban, of course, tries to smooth things over. Well, well, you see, Jacob, in our part of the world, you, you really have to marry the older daughter off first. Funny, Jacob says, you forgot to mention that to me seven years ago, or even last night, for that matter. Well, you, you know how it is, Jacob. The seven years ago, I, I thought I'd have plenty of time to marry off Leah, but it seems no one's quite interested in her. 
No joke, Jacob says spitefully. Neither am I. Well, we'll tell you what, Laban says. How about you, you just finish this wedding week with Leah. Give her the seven days. And, you know, then I'll give you Rachel to marry next week in turn for another seven years of work, of course. And so that's what they did. Because, you know, this is how you make for a happy, peaceful home, right? <laughs> or not. I mean, you can just imagine the tensions and the animosity that creates between these two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And actually, the way the Bible tells how that plays out is actually really entertaining. These two sisters, these two wives, they just start pawning over Jacob. They're competing for his attention. They're trying to make him the most babies. They're actually even making deals on the side in order to get to spend an extra night in his bed. You can tell it was men writing the story, can't you? <laughs> Truth be told, though, you know, this is actually not what Jacob wanted either. He didn't want Leah. He, he hadn't fallen in love with Leah. It was Rachel that he loved, Rachel that he'd written those poems about. It was Rachel that he had imagined life with for all of that time. But if he wants Rachel, he's going to have to accept Leah too. And that is how a real marriage actually works. Because when you get married, the truth is you are always marrying both Leah and Rachel. I've seen it many times as a pastor. I mean, yes, Rachel is the one you fell in love with. She's the one that gave you butterflies in your stomach. But one day you look, woke up and you looked at that person sleeping in the bed next to you and you realized, wait, I'm married to Leah? Now, it might not have happened the first morning for you. It might have taken a couple years, a couple decades maybe, but it will always happen. You look over and you think, wait, this is not what I bargained for. This is not the person I thought I was marrying. Rachel was who you loved. Leah is who you get. And she's someone you barely even know. And well, I, I kind of hate to break it to you, but guess what? Leah, she's not all that excited to be married to you either. You weren't her first pick. You were just the last kid on the playground, remember? And she lets you know that from time to time. And so you fight and you hurt one another and your small selves and your wounded egos, they just react against one another. And either consciously or unconsciously, you keep trying to turn her back into Rachel. But the thing is, Leah is never going to become the Rachel you imagined her to be. And so your task, your work, the spiritual work in, in any marriage is learning how to love Leah. Now, whenever I talk about marriage, I'm also painfully aware that there are times when that marriage needs to end. There are times when the lies run too deep and the threat's too great for a marriage to continue. We, we need to be honest about that, that sometimes divorce 
is the right thing. It's not what anyone had hoped for. It's not what God wanted for you. It wasn't plan A, but the honest truth is none of us live in plan A all the time. And if you're around and looking long enough, you will see God make plan B and C and D in all of our lives beautiful and redemptive in ways that we could not expect. In the same way, there are times when divorce becomes the right thing, as awful as it is, and yet God can make something beautiful and redemptive out of that. We need to remember this as a church, and we need to hold that hope out for those who are in the midst of that painful reality. But I also know that there are times when you will be tempted to jump ship a little too quickly. So somehow the church is invited to acknowledge both these things, that we have to hold up the sanctity and the work of marriage and also the depth of God's grace and love when divorce becomes a reality. But for the vast majority of of us who are getting married and are in a marriage and who are thinking about marriage, our calling, our work is actually to learn how to love both Rachel and Leah. And you know, the same is actually true in any important relationship in our lives. There is a Rachel and a Leah in your brother that you have a hard time getting along with. And there is in your sister, and there is in your parents. And guess what? There is a Rachel and a Leah in your church. You know how it is, right? You, you visited around and you visit to find a church that fancies you a bit. And when you find one, you, you start courting that place for a little while. And of course, the church, they, they flash their best smile at you, hoping that you'll stay. Somehow, they never seem to introduce you to Leah. And so most of us, we fall in love with a Rachel church. And we're excited to have found this place, and we're glad to be here. But then one day, we bump into Leah, and she is sitting across from us on some committee or in a Sunday school classroom. Or heaven forbid, Leah shows up wearing your pastor's clothes. She will, you know. And you kind of hope it's a fluke, but it happens again. And after a while, you realize, wait, you have married both Leah and Rachel. Both are there. Both are here. Among us, part of our church and in me. And we will, I will at times disappoint you. It's going to happen. I can promise you that. The question for all of us is, can we also learn to love Leah? There's this really fascinating Hebrew word in verse 17 that describes Leah and her eyes in particular when we're very first introduced to Leah. It's a very confusing Hebrew word. In fact, the only thing that scholars agree on about this word is the fact that we actually don't know how to translate the Hebrew word or what its intention was. So in this particular passage, it could mean one of two very different things. Either it is suggesting that Leah's eyes are delicate and lovely, or that her eyes are weak 
and squinty, giving her this homely, unattractive look. You see, this word, it's either in there as a compliment about Leah's beauty, or it's a remark about how unattractive she was. And the thing is, the scholars all agree, we don't know which one it's supposed to be. But they have to translate it. They can't just ignore it and leave it out. So when translators come to this word in the story that describes Leah, they have to make a choice. And neither choice is wrong. It is completely up to the perspective of the translator. And so one translation will write that her eyes are weak. And another writes that Leah's eyes are lovely. And neither is more right or wrong than the other. Now, of course, I don't know what that original intention was of that word, but I can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit is at work in the ambiguity of this word, inviting us into a deeper reading, inviting us to realize that we too can choose our perspective. We can see Leah as homely, or we can change perspective and see Leah as delicate and lovely. It is completely up to us. Jacob has to choose. And over time, it seems that a shift does seem to happen in him, or at least in part. Yes, there's this ongoing tension between Rachel and Leah through their whole lives, but there's an interesting twist that happens later on in the story. You see, later on in their lives, Rachel dies while their whole clan is journeying between two regions. And so Jacob, he buries his beloved Rachel on the side of the road, and he leaves her behind. But years later after that, when Leah dies... Jacob buries her in the family plot. He buries Leah right next to his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. He places Leah's body right next to his parents' body, Isaac and Rebekah. In other words, Jacob lays Leah to rest in the place of honor. And then years after that, when Jacob is on his own deathbed near the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob and his whole clan have gone to Egypt to be re reunited with Joseph, uh, Jacob is dying there, and he made his 12 sons, those 12 who would become the heads of the 12 tribes, they made them promise to bring his remains back out of Egypt and to lay them beside Leah. See, life has a way of changing our perspective. Along the way, you can learn to love Leah and to be at rest beside her. And if you do, it might just save more than your marriage. It might save your soul. Because not only do Rachel and Leah exist in your spouse and in your brother or sister, and do they exist in your parents, and exist in your church. Rachel and Leah both exist 
within you. The parts of you that you love and the parts you hate about yourself. Those things that you're proud of and those things that make you feel shame. Your beautiful eyes, your weak eyes, one in the same within you. You who are the very bride of Christ, remember? And God has said, you are my beloved, the one I cherish, not only because I see Rachel in you, but because I have created both Leah and Rachel, and I love the whole of who you are. So yeah, learn to love Leah in your spouse and learn to love Leah in your church, but also learn to love Leah in you so that one day you might lay down in eternal peace with the lover of your soul. Amen.